to, I mean, this is many years ago, I had a male OBGYN who, I mean, it's a common question that they ask, are you in birth control? No. Would you like to go in birth control? No. Are you sexually active? Yes. Why don't you want to go on birth control? I, and I didn't feel like I needed to explain myself, but I simply said, I, I'm not interested in birth control. Well, are you practicing safe sex? Yes. How? All of this, this interrogation, and, and it got to the point that I had to just say, I am intimate with women. And, and then there was this, then there was just this awkwardness. The conversation ended. It, there was nothing beyond that. Welcome back to another episode of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. I am your host, Jocelyn Conley, and who you just heard is actually my sister, Courtney Conley. There are several reasons why I wanted to bring her on, and before I introduce her a little bit more, I wanted to give you a little backstory about the challenges I encounter as a pelvic health provider. So whenever someone sees me for issues related to pain, say pelvic pain or pain around intercourse, there are so many factors that I have to consider as their healthcare provider. I ask myself, is their primary problem a physical therapy-driven problem, or is there some way that I can treat what they're coming in to see me for? A lot of these conditions have a psychological component or a medical component that I have to acknowledge to see if they're getting the help that they need and if my help is going to serve as an adjunct or as the primary thing to help them. So notice I said psychological component. Helping people with issues around pelvic pain and intercourse, we have to ask deeper questions, right? So it's not just about being able to have pain-free intercourse, or it's not just about sex. It's about body image when you are in the act. So how someone feels inside their body is part of an insecurity for women at least when engaging in intimacy. The other piece is your why. So why do you wanna do what you wanna do and what do you want it to feel like? So a lot of these questions bring in other disciplines and other bigger questions, right? So how is your communication with your partner? How do you define sexuality? What is your self what do you say to yourself in terms of your sexual role do you do you talk about sex as a utility or do you use it as a way to connect with yourself and connect with another individual the other piece that makes things complicated is things that influence your perspectives around sex growing up For me, I had a really confusing viewpoint or perspective on sex, partly because of my religion, partly because of how my parents talked about it, partly because of what I saw my friends do, or not really do, but talk about. And all of that, whether I'd like to admit it or not, had a role. Growing up, I had a really negative self-image around sex, which I am still stripping away and still reshaping. And I know that that goes into my dysfunction around sex, that I'm currently still working to improve. The last piece here is how we label ourselves 
So the one thing that I always admire my sis, admired my sister for was that she came out as a lesbian at pretty young age in college, I would say. I mean, is that a young age? And since coming out, she has totally owned her sexuality, her sexual orientation, I should say. And in one of my presentations lately, I verbalized that growing up, my mom would ask me, do you even like men? And I think she asked me that because I was an athlete and all I did was play sports. And if you're listening and you're an athlete, there is a, there's a, a stereotype that female athletes are, are more likely to be, to come out. And that was never the case for me. But the fact that my mom kept asking me, asking me that really was confusing. So as I am stripping perspectives and stereotypes that were placed upon me as a child, I realize how limiting labels and these stereotypes are. And something that my sister really talks about, or she, she highlights today, is that stereotypes or labels are so limiting. So I'm on this, as a healthcare provider, I am on my journey to empowering women to build their healthcare team, to find the right healthcare provider, whether that's a physical therapist, a sexual health therapist, sex and relationship coach, a gynecologist, a urologist, a urogynecologist, but also feel confident that not they don't have to have a label for everything or a diagnosis for everything. And that part of this whole healing journey is understanding your truth and understanding the whys of what you do and understanding where your thoughts and where your beliefs come from. So Courtney serves the role as talking about how sexual orientation influences her pelvic health. She like I said, came out early in college. I was like 12 or 13. And she mentions how now that she, I didn't mention she lives in Sydney, Australia, she has trouble getting care around pelvic floor dysfunction because there are, which she verbalizes as there's, there's a thing about relationships between providers and and patients when when sexual orientation comes into play. Now, as you listen to this episode, understand that this is her and I just talking as sisters. It was a really difficult conversation to have knowing that everyone had access to it after it was published. So what we did was we just started recording and just let the conversation go and see where it went. And, uh, understanding that it was a vulnerable moment for both of us and it wasn't going to be perfect. I know that sometimes the words don't come out right as you want them to. And I tried really hard to be authentic here and not to do so too much editing. Keep that in mind. Um, this is really scary for me and her to publish, but I find that the more truer, uh, the more true I am to myself and my story and my perspectives as I, as they evolve because of my, of me and not what I've just taken from other people and my religion and all the other stuff, my life becomes so much more meaningful and enjoyable as a woman. So talking about this stuff is really hard being in separating that role as a pelvic health provider and then as a woman. So look at, listen to this as me talking just as a friend rather than a healthcare provider. Courtney, I think, says in the episode of the human brain is one of the life's greatest mysteries. And what I can say is 
is I remove old perspectives and replace them with new perspectives because I've spent time or acquired experience doing new things that I previously said I would never do, I become a more, I become more human and I become more courageous and wise. And so I hope you get that from this episode. I hope that that's what you leave here with. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for sharing this journey with me. And without further ado, let's get started with the show. Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Doc. Today we have Courtney Conley, my big sister, and I wanted to bring her on because she and I have a lot of wisdom to share with you and <laughs> sharing our own story. So Court, we talk maybe once every three months. She lives in Australia. That's not true. Um, so thank <laughs> you for, for, for agreeing to do this publicly. Oh, Joss, no, thank you so much. I want to first just set the record straight. It's not three months. The time zone difference just makes it a bit challenging to chat mm-hmm. over the phone. But yeah, mm-hmm. no <laughs> sister fighting going on today, right? <laughs> well, we'll just have to see. Have we grown we'll enough have to, to have intellectual conversation without fighting? I, I think we have, but I guess only time will tell as we get real today. <laughs> and I, I think our moment of growth where we stopped fighting was when we were backpacking in Peru. Uh, we took the Salkante trek, the one to Machu Picchu, and we stayed, it was almost 14,000 feet, and it was like 20-some, high 20s, and we were, she was so sick from altitude. I was, as soon as I laid down, it was like someone took a a pipe and shoved it between my ears, and anytime I moved, I was going to vomit, <laughs> and her and I were just like, moaning <laughs> all night and then this all this, night <laughs> we, we had a moment this fall in November where she and I were just bawling because she had just moved to Australia Sydney and I had just jumped off of a bridge when I left my full-time job and went into business for myself and so court thanks it's so good to see you. It's my pleasure. It's an honor. Great to see you too, Joss. Thanks so much for having me. It really is an honor. Well, let's dive right in, shall we? Courtney, first, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for always being such an amazing big sister. You've inspired me. You've supported me. You let me sleep in your bed when I was scared. I'm really lucky to have you. But more so, I'm really grateful to have had you as a role model, especially in your journey of coming out. So let's start off by first talking about when you came out. Can you tell us that story? And and actually props to Joss as well, because when I came out, I think Joss was maybe 13 or 14. And the funny thing about being on this podcast is I will always view Dr. Joss as my my baby Juicy. I just, I remember the day she was born so clearly. So I never would have imagined talking to her on her podcast about anything of this capacity. But I I think I'm in the minority of people like me, I'll say, because again, I don't want to put myself in this binary category, but people like me who didn't know from you know childhood and and actually across my my friend group or even professional group it tends to be men and again I'm not even I don't want to umbrella statement that but men seem to know a lot more quickly than women and perhaps because generally it's you know sexually they're they they can see what's happening to their bodies when they're around people or not happening if you will for me I had no idea when I went to university and, and I think Penn State just being such a massive university with lots of diversity, lots of opportunities to experience new things. I found, I mean, I found myself just connecting better with women, just emotionally, intellectually. I've always been a reader. You know, read was my first word. I still am such a massive reader, but, um, it's kind of obnoxious. You can read a book too in, six hours. Yeah. It, it, people really, 
because everyone thinks I'm this massive extrovert, which maybe I am, but actually I'm truly an introvert in that way. But I started really connecting with women, girls, I'll say at parties over literature. So I felt like I was a bit odd and that, you know, we'd be at all these parties and my friends would be just like flirting with guys. And I was, I think, more interested in meeting girls I could have a genuine connection with. So I really started bonding with just different girls. And, and I think just throughout, I mean, I was part of a dance company and we were all just very, very close. And I think the bonds women between, the bonds women form between one another are uh, arguably just the most intense type of bond that people can have. It, it definitely probably rivals a heterosexual, emotional and intimate relationship. but. I think by the end of my junior year, it was very clear to me. So I actually, um, because I did a bit of theater too, and I auditioned to be in the vagina monologues. And ironic. I know. I, well, at that point, I had already been questioning. Just I, 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 I could feel myself being more attracted to women, but it still wasn't fully clear. I had a lot of thoughts, and have to shout out my two best friends. Uh, Marissa and Sam Yanko, who sort of were really my my anchors through this process. Marissa, I, I, I have vague memories of this, maybe because I blocked it out, but Marissa said I brought something to her attention in senior year of high school, just that I was having a little bit of feelings, but then it wasn't until college, really, that I came forward to Sam and, and really started talking about my feelings, but I, yeah, it wasn't until vagina, vagina monologues. I um, also coincidentally played the woman who likes to make vaginas happy. So I don't know if those of you out there have either seen the vagina, heard it. vagina monologues performed. I'm shocked that you haven't seen it or read it. It's so, it's phenomenal. I know. It's, I it's need very, to. you know, empowering, but the whole monologue, <laughs> You should be, especially because you're the vagina doc. But the whole monologue of this woman who likes to make vaginas happy is a, a, about a woman's journey who, um, she becomes a sex worker because she simply likes to pleasure women. And she talks about the types of orgasms people have and why she loves women. And it's very funny because when I stepped out on stage, for the very first time to perform that monologue in front of a crowd or in front of an audience. I think it was in that moment that I just knew. It's like I, I stepped into a body that I recognized. I stepped into a persona that I recognized or who I recognized and felt very confident to just come out as a lesbian woman. Everything about that narrative made sense to me. And I, I actually can't recall the last time I was attracted to a man. It was my high school boyfriend. So yeah, it, it just really made sense for me. Coming out was very difficult, however, I think because, and surely you'll see a photo of me on, on this, when Jocelyn puts out the podcast, but I'm very feminine. And so a lot of people were shocked to find out that this was the case for me. And, and the time I did come out, LGBT folks really, especially LGBT women were not being, they weren't uh, included in TV shows and movies. And whereas I think there were more men, but it still wasn't mainstream. And so it was difficult. And um, I didn't receive a lot of support at first uh, from my mother, but she, she came around very quickly. She, she doesn't pretend that it, it was easy for her in the beginning, but it was very difficult for me. And it took me a long time to move on from that. I think after that, I sought out women like moms to, to really champion me and, and who were immediately accepting of me when I came out. And I've, I've had a lot of time to reflect on that because I struggled a lot Sometimes I forget how difficult it was until I, you know, see it on movies and TV shows where it's just so easy for people these days where it's not a coming out. It's just a, hey, I have this female partner. Oh, hey, I have this male partner. And I really hope that we as a society can move toward that where people don't need to come out about their sexuality. It's just 
hey, I'm, I'm a boyfriend. I have a girlfriend. I have a partner. God love the Aussies uh, for just calling everyone partner because it shouldn't matter if it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or it should just be, this is my person. I really hope mom isn't listening to all the things that I've been doing online because in sharing my stories, she comes up a lot and it all goes back to all the messaging or the conversations mom and I had. And even though at the time they might have not been, they haven't, they were tough conversations. I'm so grateful that I think she did the best she could. And whatever she said was fine at the time because it ultimately shaped me and you how we are today. So mom, we love you. The truth is mom did the best she could. Yeah. And you know, I can't even sit here and critique anyone's parenting and how I would handle it. And mom now it's, she's done a 180 that I, I do. I think again, it's something I block out of my head because she's the person who's, who does everything she can to, you know, connect with other people who have LGBT children. Uh, she's been so supportive of all of my you know, endeavors since then, mm -hmm. uh, any partner that I have, I mean, she's adorable, but it's, you know, I think actually, this is not a podcast for you, but I think a, a whole podcast series, series about parents with LGBT children could come out because it, parents, while it's not their journey, it's their child's, but I think there's a degree of discomfort in talking about it and, and just going through that journey. But no, in, that was a very long way of saying it was not an easy coming out for me. I, I still question, I mean, I don't now, but I did for a long time just, do I, do I want to commit to this binary? I haven't been intimate with men in so long. I don't really know, but I think I know. So it's just, you know, Court, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when you came out, it was almost relieving because at the time, mom kept asking me if I was a lesbian because of my affiliation with sports. It was ridiculous. So when you came out, I'm like, oh, isn't that ironic that Courtney's the lesbian and not me? So it took pressure off of me and mom constantly asking me if I was a lesbian. But besides that, you know, when you came out, I don't even remember. I honestly couldn't tell you how mom responded because she didn't show it in front of me. And the way I took it was, I didn't really care. I was just happy that the pressure was off me because mom literally asked me all the time. It was so annoying. You know, Court, you make a really good point where when you say you haven't dated a man in a while, so, but you think you, you, you're, you think you know, but how do you know? And that's such a good point whether or not you, you, either way, the problem with labeling yourself as a single, like a binary, it does close you off, right? So I currently, I mean, if I had to identify myself, I would say I'm heterosexual, a heterosexual female, but that who's to say that I, someone wouldn't come along and change that. So I'm really careful of using labels because in, you never know. And that goes along with anything in life. It's funny. And, and I want to be careful about this because I think professionally, I happily and openly identify as a lesbian because I have taken a stance in the workplace and I am a huge advocate for LGBTQIA in the workplace. However, I think the older I get, the more I just don't really identify as a binary because I do believe that you can fall in love with anyone. I, I actually do believe more in hearts, not parts. For myself, I mean, I, I prefer women. When I became cognizant of that, I then always did prefer women, but I know plenty of women who have spent a significant part of their lives 40 plus with men and then fall in love with a woman. And so it's just evident to me that it, it becomes more about the person. 
So before we started recording, Courtney and I were talking about the time we met in November in DC when she was back for a work meeting and that I was hanging on to a job, a PRN job, where I go to people's homes to treat them. And something was really weighing on me. I was driving all over the Phoenix Metro and I was basically losing money. But I was hanging on to this job because I was, I had the opportunity to really get to know people beyond just their rehab problem. And these people had such valuable insight on love and relationships. Don't ask me how we got into those conversations, but we did. And basically, my biggest takeaways were, because I'm single, they're like, make sure no matter what, you don't settle. The person that you choose is someone that you can, you grow and you connect with. And you can be okay taking care of them should something go wrong. And that really resonated with me because I've been single for a long time now, since 2016, and it made me really question a lot of things. So at the time, and still to this day, I am pretty new into entrepreneurship and I've been reading or I read the book The High Performance Habits by Brendan Bruchard and one of the categories that I was really not doing well was relationships and every time at my end of the week reflection my relationships like intimate relationships and even friendships my score was so low So I was home for Christmas and one of my friends was like, why don't you open your dating pool? Because I was complaining. I'm like, I am not dating. And every time I do date, it's just, it's a waste of my time. And so I was like, okay, I feel that in my head, I'm like, I need to, I'll save you all the juicy details for another time but basically what I left Pittsburgh thinking was my current perspectives on dating are some of which are not that healthy and it would it it would be worthwhile to basically go through a I don't know, a dating makeover. So I, Court, we talked about this. I opened my dating pool to both men and women. And I mean, very, very interesting time for sure. I do, I am still very much into men. But at the same time, I have, I mean, I have so much insight, right? And... (laughs) I've, it brings me back to that time. So anyways, I really do resonate with the limitation of binary, the binary classification. However, what I do, what I'm proud of most is that I tried, I'm open and In my experience, again, I will spare you the juicy details for off recording. I have been exposed to the most interesting people who have challenged me to my absolute core. Things that I said for the majority of my life, that's weird, or oh my gosh, I would never do that. I am actually considering now, and maybe not just that's my my preference but the the, it's getting me to ask why i feel this way 
why have I been into men? Like, what is it about men that I like? Or what is it about being vanilla that I like? Or what is it about being adventurous that I like? And then that opens up a whole new world of, wow, I really don't know myself. Or this is what went wrong in my previous relationships. Or this is how I can improve in my future relationships. And so, yeah, I mean, love and partnership is complicated, but at the same time, it's it's a huge area for growth for a lot of people. And I think that, I hope that people are open to exploring that. I've just recently discovered sapiosexual, which is falling in love with someone's intellect and their desire to grow. That's what I'm attracted to. I would say that's a good category for me too. And admittedly, I don't explore all these smaller sexualities. It's, it's just not something I've, I've got, I've, I've really explored, you know, definitions of, but I agree. I, I tend to live a life of curiosity, but yeah, when it comes down to it, the people I'm attracted to and connect with are people I intellectually connect with or emotionally connect with. And I think increasingly society is moving away from, yeah, just can't live without the, the D or you know, women aren't walking around saying, I just love the V. It's just, I love this person and I'm able to feel aroused by someone based on a connection I make. And I, and I do think it's a societal movement, right? I really hate binaries because they're limited, right? Right. I agree. Because frankly, if you've been with men your whole life and then you suddenly are attracted to women, why should you identify as a bisexual? Well, it's, it's society imposing that on you for its own comfort. And so it, it, do, it does interest me deeply, but yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you at your age are coming forward saying, yeah, I've had fulfilling sexual encounters with women, but that doesn't mean I want to be in a relationship with one. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very fascinating to me. Changing gears just a little bit. Can you tell me what your experience was like around education with sex and then also how you viewed your pelvic health as a teenager and then now that you know a lot more being that I've taught you a lot along the way? Well, I mean, you know, I grew up an athlete, a dancer. I think I've always had body image issues and have been a bit obsessive about my weight, even though it'd be silly for me to say I've ever had any weight issues and, and I never had any unhealthy relationships with food. But I, I mean, I've always been obsessive about working out and I believe it or not, I don't think I've ever told you this. So talk about vulnerability on a podcast, but in between sisters, but the first orgasm I actually had was at the gym, which is really funny. And I wonder if you and other people have had this. You know that ab crunching machine they had it at the yeah. healthplex in Mon Valley? Gosh, if people in Melbourne and hear this, which they will. So I was using it, you know, to do the crunches and I could feel a sensation in my pelvic area, which was definitely pleasurable and definitely shocking. And I remember the first few times that I noticed it growing with each consecutive repetition. It got too intense. It definitely was not an orgasm at that time, so I would stop. I had thought about it, you know, in evening, because I was a teenager then, probably 17 or 18. And finally, another time I was using the machine, I, I just let it go and just explored that sensation. And lo and behold, I absolutely had an orgasm, probably one of the more intense orgasms I've experienced. Um, obviously, that orgasm was unstimulated, was, was a result of not having clitoral stimulation. And so I remember, you know, stepping away and actually feeling emotional about it because at that point I had been having intercourse with men, I'll just say one man, but I had never experienced anything remotely similar to that experience. But 
to the to the original question of just education around sex and even pleasure. I don't know if you remember this, but I feel like we had session in first of all, maybe fourth or fifth grade, where they talk to you about periods. Oh, yeah. But the 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 formal education around sexuality and whatnot happens so early that I don't really remember it. I remember it was more associated with if you're in love and you want to have children, then you should you should become intimate with someone. And in the nineties and of course beyond, there was no conversation around women and men having sex with one another. So I think the education was very heterosexually inclined. But and and I feel like mom had a really awkward conversation with at least me at one stage when I got my period saying, you know, here's why you need to be careful because now you're able to have a baby. But I don't think I ever really formally learned about myself really. And I think I just, it was just through experience. And I'm guessing that's been most people's stories, especially because like you said, it's such a taboo topic and it needs to be brought to the surface. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, after I had those, that initial orgasm on the uh, ab machine, I, I never had that sensation again for many years close to 10 years, I think, but just yeah. so, you, so that the was audience, the starting point, I think for me. The audience has some context to what Courtney looks like. She's about five, two, she weighs about a hundred pounds and she's no. <laughs> thin and fit. And it never made sense to me why court you were, had body image issues. And then as for, uh, your point in our education around the around sex and sexuality our parents were never really sexually they weren't all lovey-dovey in front of us i know which i think it would have made me feel uncomfortable but to to be very clear about that statement i don't know why I don't know why it would have made me uncomfortable if we were witnessing mom and dad all over each other. Because at the end of the day, you want your parents to be happy and sexually thriving. You don't want to hear about it. Right. But I agree. Because but I we all that. want that. Yes. Right. It it's so weird. Sense. I hope mom, you're not listening. But yeah. And I mean, I actually, to, to, I mean, to our parents' credit, I don't have any friends whose parents really sat them down and gave them this full-blown overview that was anything beyond the utility the the utility aspect of sex like you you have sex when you're trying to have a baby so it's 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 just a very uncomfortable topic that obviously you're addressing but and here's my thoughts and here and I think my colleagues would agree both as in the rehab world but also in the sexual health world is that I think our parents don't know either they don't know themselves. So how are they going to tell us? Which is really no. sad. And I can absolutely attest to that, that my older I, I mean, parents have no idea. So, and it's indicative of, of just where society was. It's, I think I would argue that our parents lie in the majority of folks in that age group. And it's, People like your, I'll say your, is your healthcare professional responsibility to educate and to bring these, these tough topics to the public. And, and I mean, I, you, you remember when I, even I asked you about the name of your business and it is even just someone for me, 33 years old, it's when I would tell my friends, oh yeah, she's the vagina doc. And there was a little bit of a gasp, like that's a pretty explicit name, but frankly, society has done that society impose meaning on what it means to be sexual and and taboos around talking about sexuality and pleasure so you know yes I was a little bit reluctant to come onto this podcast but I also want to be part of a movement an educational movement uh it would be sort of contradictory for me at, at this point I think not to to be part of that but yeah, it is very fascinating. I, I, and actually now that I'm sitting here talking about it, I don't think, yeah, any of my friends straight or, straight or not, or ident- self-identified straight, 
have had any sort of education around how to pleasure yourself, what <laughs> the way around your own parts, if you will. Right. Hey, I, so Courtney and I both went to Penn State. I took so many anatomy classes. We are. <laughs> we, in, there was minimal, if not any education on the pelvic floor, minimal talk on pleasure and orgasm and the clitoris and all of that. So even from a medical training perspective, it's very limited. It, so I think that's why I wanted to even start this podcast in the first place. I wanted to have these uncomfortable conversations because too many healthcare providers are uncomfortable about this topic as well, which draws negative attention or an energy with another person that wants to ask questions, wants to share. It's almost like they get that vibe and they don't want to ask for help or ask questions. I have utmost utmost respect for and it's not just because you're my sister but healthcare professionals professionals who are brave and curious enough to embark on a journey like this where you say I can't necessarily speak about this if I haven't experienced it because it is you know it's not something that you're inclined to do and for me it's it's almost like the undergraduate student who goes directly into an MBA or where they're getting all of this education and textbook knowledge, but they haven't put any of it into practice yet. So it, it, you can't necessarily, or I, I would argue, you, that education isn't as effective if you have no experience really to, to lean on, to, to sort of apply knowledge. So anyway, I think it's really amazing that you're embarking on that journey because you're able to actually more holistically provide an informed recommendation, an ear. I mean, you, you mentioned these healthcare professionals. A great example is I go on and off of Lexapro, which I openly talk about for anxiety. Unfortunately, I have to say that, and I'm happy to, to share the experience in a bit, but unfortunately my healthcare professional here, he's a psychiatrist. The way I'll show you works is you need to see a psychiatrist for these sorts of medications is a male and, and he has asked me, when you're on Lexapro, do you have sexual dysfunction? And, and admittedly, I feel so uncomfortable. I can't, I can't describe why. It may because there's stigma around lesbians to begin with when it comes to males, but he, it, it's even just his tone of voice. And when I say no, or I don't, I don't know, it's just full, why don't you know? And it seems like this interrogation and, oh, by the way, hey, this is a really sensitive subject. I don't know you. You're also not a woman. So yeah, that is a topic I've been trying to just think about myself. Why do I feel so uncomfortable in these settings? But I, I think it's probably because they can't relate to it. And it feels a little, I don't know, it just feels a little bit incriminating. You feel like you're being judged without being judged and the language right. used or not used really does impact your experience even if it's not personal the the person on the receiving end feels it which really makes it hard to go back or trust right and i think there are very few healthcare professionals i'll say women's healthcare professionals or even in the psychiatry field, when you deal with medications that may cause sexual dysfunction, dysfunction meaning inability to achieve orgasm, et cetera. Yeah, it becomes this really awkward dialogue when it, it shouldn't be because I, I should feel comfortable talking to a psychiatrist about it if I did. But the reality is, is I don't know and I don't wanna have that conversation with him, frankly. Um, but anyway, I mean, this is, this is similar to, I mean, if this is many years ago, I had a male OBGYN who, I mean, it's a common question that they ask, are you in birth control? No. Would you like to go in birth control? No. Are you sexually active? Yes. Why don't you want to go on birth control? I don't think that's a fair question to ask a woman. And I didn't feel like I needed to explain myself, but I simply said, I, I'm not interested in birth control. Well, are you practicing safe sex? Yes. How? All of this, this interrogation, and, and it got to the point that I had to just say, I 
and intimate with women. And, and then there was this, then there was just this awkwardness. The conversation ended. It, there was nothing beyond that. And of course, from that day, I vowed to never see a male OBGYN again. But that's not to say that all men OBGYN are like right. that. It's just, I had such a, tra- I don't want to say traumatic. Um, it's okay to say traumatic. Experience. It's, because those, those words, those experiences, if you don't process them, they're just going to hang out there, whether you're aware of it or not. And it's, you should not feel guilty or shame, feel ashamed for being, I don't know if hurts the right word, but uncomfortable. uncomfortable, yes, because it's our job as healthcare providers to create a safe space so that you are comfortable or patients, people are comfortable coming forward that they have problems in the first place. That being said, I want to change gears a little bit and ask you to talk about your pelvic health. You shared with me in the past that insertion was painful. Now that you know that there is help, how open are you to receiving it? (laughs) It's probably not great that the sister of a pelvic doc is not engaged in these sorts of activities, but admittedly, and I think people should hear this, it's, it's very important, but when I was having intercourse with a man, I did experience a great deal of pain. That being said, that was not an impetus for me to think, oh, I might be interested in women. It was simply, I had pain and I thought it was normal. It's clearly not normal. So that's just one thing I, I want to point out. I even experienced pain with tampons. So it, it's just, I, am, I have a very tight public pelvic floor. Which I haven't seen a physio for. Right, right. And I haven't. And that's my own fault, especially when I have a sister. But frankly, and maybe strangely, I would prefer to it to be preferred for that examination to be done by my sister. But I think it's a great testimonial of why women don't. It's just such a personal and uncomfortable topic. And, and just, I can't even imagine actually going to anyone other than you to have this done. But I clearly, I need to have work done because I shouldn't be experiencing pain inserting a tampon. Right. I I would do it if that would mean you would get help, but I think it, there's so many great physios out there and physical therapists out there that can hold the same space. And I hear you. And I think to an extent, it would be really awkward to have you giving me an exam. I think to speak for probably the mass audience or just most women even just the process of trying to find someone like yourself, someone who, you know, there's evidence that they're compassionate care. Uh, they actually have experience in something that you're experiencing. I think it feels like it, an impossible task. I, I, I mean, I just, yes, I've, I've almost been in Australia for one year, but I'm still trying to figure out who my basic healthcare providers are, let alone a specialized one and certainly I I want to get checked. I I actually have pretty much stopped wearing tampons because I'm having a lot of pain with tampons. And that's news to you, Joss, obviously. So clearly I need I need to see someone, but I can't even find a doctor, just a general GP I really like, and you need to get a referral in many cases, let alone a specialist. So I would be willing to guess a lot of women I mean, I have some friends who have disclosed this to me that they have this similar pain with tampons, but where do you start? So it's, I think, it, yeah, it's, it's not that I haven't wanted to have that looked at. It's just where, where do you start? How do you, how do you find someone like yourself? Right. So there's a website and I'll put the link again in the show notes. It's pelvicguru.com and you find a, find a provider that way. And another thing I want to mention is that there are a lot of physios and physical therapists that are moving online, especially because of the global pandemic. So reaching out to someone there and seeing if you can talk to someone or schedule a consult. And then there's actually times where you could be walked through your own self-exploration. And sometimes if it's appropriate, the provider will say, hey, maybe you you, you can try more than just a finger, or you can try the, a wand or, or even dilators. 
I myself have seen a lot of success with that, but they aren't for everyone. So that's just an option. If you explore yourself, then maybe that would be more comfortable for you in the meantime until you find someone. Well, let me, and I hear you, and let me challenge you on this for myself and anyone else who's curious. I think there's a stigma, not necessarily in the LGBTQIA world, but more in the heterosexual space where, you know, especially given all the messaging out there and whatever messaging means that men want a woman with a tight vagina. And so I think there's this misconception that if you're using dilators and other, other devices to stretch yourself out, that it won't feel as good for a man or you may have incontinence as a result. I think that too needs to be addressed head on. Can you explain why that's a benefit and why it won't mean that it's going to stretch you out sure. in, in a negative way, if you will? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I rolled my eyes as I was saying that because it, it really peeves me to think that women consider how a man would feel when it comes to their own right. part body of it, parts and sexuality. Part of what growing up in a small town came with was you're only exposed to such a small piece of what's really out there. Oh. So oh my gosh. People yeah. would have this this thought. I just don't think that they are doing a broad enough assessment of what's truly the case. And I think it's a deeper question of, oh, it's the male pleasure. It, it, I don't know if I can answer that. I think I would need a colleague that was more in the sexual health space. I spoke with someone yesterday. The episode is going to be, is already been out. It's with uh, Kendall Merritt. She's a sex and relationship coach. She would be better better able to speak on this, but if you're listening and you are one of the things that's holding you back from doing things like working on the pelvic floor flexibility, while I understand where you're coming from in the fear of being more incontinent or getting incontinent in the first place, it's not the way the system works. And if a muscle is balled up to begin with. So let's say you're really tight because all the muscles are super spasmed or overactive. Your tissues aren't going to be plumpy and fluffy for it to be pleasurable anyways. But if you stretch those tissues, they then have a capacity to be strengthened. Mm -hmm. And that means better continence, better pelvic organ support, better orgasms, pretty much everything. So in the most simplest terms, that's why. Stop listening to, you know, those myths because those are myths. Good point, Court. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, no, I mean, because I think to myself, even just um, because I've never had incontinence, and that takes me back to the story you just discussed on one of your posts about us running the marathon together when you were 18 years old and you, you turned to me and you're like, Court, I'm peeing. And you were 18 years old. And I don't know if you were sexually active then, but it's, I have always falsely and wrongly associated a stretched, you know, vaginal cavity, if that's the right phrase, with incontinence. And that's obviously not the case. And I think it's a huge myth that needs to be busted in every, I mean, anyway, that, that's just why I had also raised it. I was, what was I 18? Yeah, I was, or, or was I 19? Yeah. 19. Well, either way, you were still a baby. There should never have been any incontinence. And, and I thought, I just, I, the way I envision it for you is because I said, well, what do you mean? And you, you took a drink of the water and you're like, I take a drink and it just goes right through me, which was so bizarre. I mean, our bodies, I mean, we're under so much stress. You're running a marathon, but that in and of itself should have been indicative of, hey, <laughs> there's an issue here. Incontinence doesn't necessarily mean a wide set vagina, as they say on Mean Girls. Right. That? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. No. No. And I, my colleague, Susan, <laughs> she's in Pittsburgh. She's in Swickley and she's amazing. She's been on the show before. I would love to have her talk about this because there are points where our body just stops like 
normally absorbing stuff. So I think it was a combination of things. One, my pelvic floor was completely fatigued and had no capacity to help. My body was in severe stress because I didn't run for a month. But then that was after that experience with the video drama with the family. Mm -hmm. So I had been guarded in my emotions and all the things were just going south there. Sex hurt. Well, you tell me that. It's pretty amazing how far we've come that we're able to talk about this, not only with one another, but in a public setting. Uh, Would you say that other people that you know are comfortable talking about this? I wouldn't say I'm necessarily comfortable. This is a huge vulnerable moment for me. And especially because of my professional image and, you know, I, I, I think in general, it's always when you're not in healthcare and you're a public professional in another way, it's, it's, it makes people nervous. I would say no, most people are not, at least people in my age range and older are not comfortable talking about these things, even in smaller circles. I, I don't think I've ever talked to friends about when they first orgasmed and when they first realized they were having pleasure. I mean, there was none of that. And I never have talked about women who are interested in women sexually, just, I don't know, just sort of how they discovered how to pleasure themselves or other people. It just, I think, becomes this exploration. So yeah, I, do, I don't really think, and I'm, and I, I am very, I want to be very clear about this. This is not comfortable for me, but I try really hard to do things that are uncomfortable so that I grow. I mean, you're the same way, but no, I want to be clear. This is not comfortable for me at all. So I agree. And I almost canceled this episode today because I was like, am I really ready to, I almost backed out. Yeah. And- I almost backed out. I felt sick before I came on this. And So I think this moment is a huge moment of personal growth for both you and I, because every time I come on here, I'm like, what the hell am I going to say? What are people going to think about me? And are they going to not want to be, have me as their provider or consultant because of something that I said on the podcast? But in reality, what our parts are, are just parts. And sex is an act. They're just parts that can be defined differently depending on who you are. And working on your orgasm potential is no different than working on your back squat. And Could you wouldn't would <laughs> feel guilty for working out, working on yourself in the gym. So you shouldn't, be, shouldn't feel guilty working on your, your, comf- your desire to to find and experience pleasure with your body, whether that's with you and you alone or with a partner. So the fact that you came on is really important because just recently, more of an influx of people from home have reached out and asked me questions. And, and so for them to be vulnerable and say, hey, I've been following you and it's really weird seeing you do what you do, but, we, but I love it and I appreciate it because it's so helpful. By you having this conversation, people are going to say, hey, it's okay to have conversations like this, right? It is. And if me telling a story and me being vulnerable will help help even one other person, then I've done my job and I'm happy to have done it. I think the human brain is what? One of life's greatest mysteries we will I don't think we will ever in our lifetime understand fully how the human brain works and I mean why I say that is because like you said there's no cookie cutter way to have sex and there's no one way to experience pleasure and I think each individual and each couple will always be on a journey to figure that out I mean sex is whatever you want it to be it's fun it's funny I mean I think the best sex I ever have is when I end up laughing with someone throughout it because of awkward things that happen. I mean, we're human beings. I think people put so much pressure on this act and this climax, which that, that's great and everything, but I think it also needs to be treated as more of a journey. And I think 
the sooner individuals become more comfortable with themselves and be comfortable uh, throwing out the word normal. Normal is one word I try not to use at all. I'm trying to take it out of my there is, vocabulary. And, and everyone listening, if there's anything you take away from this podcast, anything, it's stop using the word normal. I think you'll be amazed to see how your life changes, your perspective changes. And, and really, I think, unfortunately, social media is at the root of that. But it, social media also does a lot of great things like this. You're able to get messages out there. You're, you're reaching people who are, who are hiding behind something or are very secretive about the way that they feel. And yeah, I, I, I put myself out there as, as someone who's happy to talk to you if you've experienced something similar. I don't have all the answers. I just have a story I can rely upon. And I'm comfortable enough, I guess, to talk about it openly. But um, uh, where do you want to see the, these topics? How do you want people to be talking about these topics in 10 years? Well, given that I work for a software company, I, I see how quickly the world adapts to, the world can adapt to change and how technologically advanced we are. It's, it's really hard to imagine just technologically where we will be. But my hope is that, you know, in several years, it will just be part of a, a regular medical I don't know, medical menu that you just, all women have a pelvic floor doctor, pelvic floor physical therapist, and not just women who are about to, to, to get pregnant or give childbirth, but all women are seeing women like you, Joss, and, and can have that education. And it's just part of what people know. I hope that schools are better about educating students. Obviously, schools are careful about what they put forth to students, but at the very least, maybe universities are teaching their medical students about this, or even just undergraduates, general, you know, health courses or requirements. And then, then of course, in the media, I mean, we, we really, I have to thank, the, thank, you know, TV shows and film for, for putting forward people like myself on the screen because I think it normalizes things when when people from Bel Vernon see lesbian couples on the TV on their favorite TV shows I remember when Grey's Anatomy put on Arizona and Cali and I remember I was so committed to that show because I actually identified with it and it it made small town folks who are not exposed to these things every day see that this is a reality and so my hope is that it's very very available for people and it becomes just something that you don't think twice about something people don't have to feel nervous about so that's what i hope and then of course with the help of technology it reaches a, a massive 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 audience yeah for sure i think that companies like yours and some of the rising companies that are out there with a team of people with a strong mission are going to really propel our world forward, especially because of things that are happening like this global pandemic. If you don't change, you're not going to make it. Last thing, last thing, um, I am starting to ask people or challenge people to, to get out of their comfort zone, whether that's having a conversation with someone or seeking and doing something to improve society's educate or awareness that this is sex is just an act, sexual health or pelvic floor health is absolutely vital and it's just another area of the body. So I myself want to be, my action is, well, I'm going on my personal journey in that I wanna try all the different sex toys. I wanna be able to be, I wanna be educated on things like the capacity for people to maximize the different sensations like vision, touch, smell, all of those, which is there's trainings in like the BDSM world. So that's something I'd like to take one of those classes or workshops, but then also eliminate the word normal out of my vocabulary. Those are just some examples. What are, what's one action that you can take to bring awareness to your community or improve something in your own pelvic health? Well, I think for me, actually agreeing to come on this podcast was my act because I, I was really reluctant. 
again, I, I'm, I'm pretty public. I, I'm connected with many work colleagues on my social media. I promoted this on my own social media. I will promote this on, again, since I already promoted it. And I think it's extremely vulnerable for me because it's risky, right? You're not meant to bring these conversations necessarily into the workplace. But I think what I have found, even just in individual conversations, in my promoting you on my social media, people have come forward to me and said, actually, I do follow your sister and she gives so many helpful tips. And oh, I actually have shared her name with other people who are experiencing similar things. And so I think it's all about continuing to promote people like yourself and, and be willing to step forward if you feel safe to do so. Of course, I felt safe to come forward and, and have this conversation, but I think, yeah, I mean, I continue to to try to be an activist in the LGBTQIA community as best I can. But also for me, my mission was to eliminate that word normal and really just be more open-minded about people's experiences and, and uh, yeah, just relationships and, and sexuality in general. Just to speak on that for a second is, I don't know if there's anything better to respond to that than saying this. You can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't have both. Did we get real, Court? I couldn't agree more with that. Did we get real? We got the realest we've ever been, Juice. I think we so. I think we did. Been. Thank you so much. <laughs> it really been. <laughs> Wait, I have to shout out really than us bawling our eyes out in that tent in the on our way to Machu Picchu, no? When we oh my we gosh, dying. yes. <laughs> we almost died, but this was more real. Courtney, thank you so much for your time. I miss you. I love you. And all of you listeners, thank you for being vulnerable and staying on the show until now. Until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.